Hello, good evening. 1 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 4, and first five verses. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. And But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. The capacity to make judgments is fundamental to our lives. We cannot survive without the ability to assess and deduce and make careful deter de de determinations and judgments a thousand times every day on matters big and small. And Paul and Apollos and Cephas have been, if you like, the object of misjudgments at the hand of the Corinthians. And Paul is writing today not only to put the record straight in his own case, but to help the Corinthians find a better way. I want us to notice three things. First of all, in verses one and two, in face of the Corinthians' misjudgments, he teaches them how the church should view gospel ministers. Then in verses three and four, Paul teaches us how gospel ministers and actually how every Christian ought to view themselves. And finally, in verse five, he wants us to understand the only opinion that really matters is God's. So how should the church view gospel ministers from verses one and two as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God? The Corinthians didn't think highly of Paul. Second Corinthians 10, Paul says, for they say his weighty letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. His speech of no account. Just a little sample of their judgmentalism and their dismissiveness toward Paul. Paul was dismayed by it when he met with it at Corinth. But when the Bible shows us the flaws of the church, as it does here in 1 Corinthians, it aims not only to correct those flaws, but to teach us how to exercise patience with the church as we see those flaws. It aims to remind us that the struggles of the church today are the same as the struggles of the church back then. And that is because the church is full of sinners and hypocrites. Like me, maybe like you, frauds, compromised people. After all, is not the church the best place for us? For hypocrites and frauds and failures, where else should they be? Is not the church the best place for people just like us? Let us critique the church for her failure to be all that she ought to be, but let us not be surprised when the same old struggles that plagued the church in Paul's day plague the church in our day. Instead, let us be patient, recognising that while, while we might take offence at the flaws we see in others, we may not see the mirror image of those same flaws quite so clearly in ourselves. Be patient. The church struggles because the church is full of sinners and hypocrites and failures like me and like you. It was in Paul's day and it is in ours too. Well, in Corinth in particular, they've been judging Paul harshly and unjustly. He corrects their thinking carefully. Look at what he says in verses 1 and 2. We ought to regard him 
and the other leaders over whom the Corinthians have been squabbling as first servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. The word servants, it isn't the normal word for servant, it is the Greek word yiperetas, and it usually meant or originally meant an under rower, a galley slave on the lowest deck of an ancient ship. Chained to their oars, they had to pull the oars to the beat of the overseer's drum. Now, the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, a Yapiritis was any kind of servant in general, but it still conveyed this sense of menial, lowly, humble service. That is what a minister is, Paul says, a galley slave pulling his oar to the beat of the master's drum, the servant of all. But then Paul says he's also a steward, which is another word picture of a domestic slave who's been entrusted with the management of the resources of an ancient Greco-Roman household or estate. Ministers, Paul says, are stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, when Paul talks about and the New Testament talks about mystery, it doesn't mean an Agatha Christie novel where you have to play detective and try and work it out. It doesn't mean a secret that is hidden from our view, but it's a reference to the gospel of our Lord Jesus that once was obscured, but now has been revealed to the apostles and written down for us in the Bible. The apostle Paul himself talked about this back in chapter 2, verse 7. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Then he says, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the spirit. That's what mystery means. It's to do with the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So when Paul calls ministers stewards of the mysteries of God, he's giving us a job description. He's saying that it is the minister's Fundamental task, like the steward in the old household, to dispense the mysteries of God. That is to preach the gospel, to feed the members of the household, to supply them with the resources of the word of God for their nourishment and their provision. There may be a thousand other tasks demanding a minister's attention, but if they are allowed to distract from this, if they undermine his ability to do this, He is not fulfilling his calling to steward the mysteries of God as he ought. No, he's to open the Bible, explain the scriptures, preach Christ from the word of God. So the minister is an under rower, a galley slave, pulling his oar to the beat of King Jesus, his master's drum. And he is a steward, caring for the household of faith, wisely dispensing the gospel of grace to God's people. Alistair Begg sums up the big idea here really rather well when he said gospel ministers are servants of the church, but the church is not their master. We work for King Jesus, pulling all at his command, serving the church with his word according to his design. We serve the church, but it is Jesus Christ, not the church, who is our master. Is he faithful? That is the key question. Now, you can imagine the challenge of this teaching for the Corinthians who were wanting to rate ministers on the flamboyance and the artistry of their public speech. They wanted rock stars and celebrities, not galley slaves and household stewards. But the ministers that God will bless, Paul says, the ministers that the church needs are faithful stewards 
dispensing the mysteries of God, the word of Christ, the gospel of grace, diligently for the daily nourishment of the people of God. This is how the church should view ministers. Ministers serve the church at the decree and command of the Lord Jesus, who is our master. Secondly, how gospel ministers and every Christian ought to view themselves, verses 3 and 4. There are three courtrooms in these five verses. I want to think about the first two. We'll come to the third in a few moments. The first two are in verses 3 and 4. The first courtroom is the courtroom of public opinion. Paul has been tried in the courtroom of public opinion at Corinth. Each week he was at Corinth in household after household. You could be sure of the main dish being served for Sunday lunch. Do you know what that dish was? It was a delicacy at Corinth. What did they have for Sunday lunch week after week when Paul was with them? They served up a steaming pile of roast pasta. They took his ministry apart with critical, bitter judgmentalism, the cause of public opinion. Second court is the court of private conscience. In the courtroom of his own conscience, while he's unaware of anything specific that could condemn him, he knows that his own private verdict, his own estimation of himself, is hardly more reliable than the biased judgments of the Corinthians. And I want us to see carefully how Paul deals with the verdicts of both courts. On the one hand, it is a small thing, he says, to be judged by you in the courtroom of public opinion. And on the other hand, he doesn't even trust his own judgments about himself in the courtroom of private conscience. So here is my question. Would you like to be free from the fear of other people's prejudice? Unconcerned about their judgments concerning you? Or how about freedom from the tyranny of self-reproach? Or the blindness of arrogant self-confidence? Both of which Paul avoids marvellously. How does he do it? This is how ministers ought to view themselves, neither driven by the fear of men or enslaved by the demands of ego. And here is a model I rather suspect of how we would all love to view ourselves. Unconcerned about what people say about us and not for a moment believe in our own publicity either. We often find ourselves cowering in fear of other people's judgments or deeply wounded and upset when we hear them. Moved and swayed by what we worry others will say of us or living under the tyranny of our own internal neurosis. I like to tell young preachers that ministers need to develop thick skin and tender hearts. But all too often we have thin skin and hard hearts. Thin-skinned ministers, every barb, every snide remark, wounds. But if our hearts hearts are hard, we don't learn lessons. We're not teachable. And the wounds we receive don't bear fruit. What we need is thick skin and tender hearts. Paul has thick skin. It's a small thing that I should be judged by you. He has a tender heart. I do not even judge myself. There is humility. But cultivating thick skin and a tender heart is not so easy. So how does Paul do it? How could we all do it? Which leads me to the last point in verse 5. How God views us all. The third courtroom. The only one that matters. Verse 5, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul says do not pronounce judgment before the time. He's echoing the familiar words of Jesus, judge not lest ye be judged. Favourite words 
in the current cultural climate in which we live. And often they're taken to mean that we ought not to make moral judgments. Moral judgments are off limits. Don't judge. To call something right and something else wrong is judgmental and unloving, we're told. And that is clearly not what Paul has in mind, because if you look at the next chapter, we see him making strong moral judgments indeed, urging the church to practice church discipline in the case of sexual immorality. In fact, in verse 3 of chapter 5, Paul says, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So Paul is not saying that when he tells the judgments not to pass judgment before the time, don't make moral judgments. Neither is he saying don't make theological judgments. In 1 Corinthians 14, when he's talking about the ministry of the prophets at the church in Corinth, he says two or three at most should speak and the rest should weigh what is said. The word weigh is the word judge. Judge what is to be said. You had to exercise theological discernment to weigh and to judge the truthfulness of what has been taught from the scriptures. So Paul is not saying don't make moral judgments about what is right and wrong. And neither is he saying don't make doctrinal judgments about what is true and false. The Bible commands us to do both. And no small part of Christian maturity lies in our ability to do that with humility and skill according to the standard of God's word. But Paul is rebuking the Corinthians for developing a standard of their own, not a biblical standard, but a standard based on personal tastes and preferences, acting as judge and executioner over any and all who do not measure up to these standards. Do not pronounce judgments like that before the time, he's saying. This is before the Lord returns. When Jesus comes back and the final courtroom is called into session, he will judge by the perfect standards of God's word and his judgments will overturn yours every time. In fact, on that day, Paul says, you will find yourself no longer sitting at the bench as a self-appointed judge, but in the dock, summoned to give an account. On that day, Paul says, the things hidden in the darkness will be exposed and Christ will uncover the purposes of the heart. Now, is that not ultimately why our judgmentalism is really very foolish in the end? Because we cannot read hearts, only Jesus can. How careful we should be about judging the motives of others when only the searching gaze of Jesus can penetrate to those depths. I have heard people make moral judgments and personal judgments about people's character all the time, but Jesus and no one else can and will expose the secret motives of the heart and the things hidden in the darkness. And one day he will, Paul says. Paul wants the Corinthians and he wants us to be mindful of that day and that courtroom, the verdict of which is the only one that really matters. And if we were more aware and began to live as Paul manages to do here, living in the light of eternity, how would that affect how we live day by day by the community of God's people? And if you look at the end of verse five, you see how it is that Paul was able to live free from the fear of the opinion of others in the court of public opinion and even hold his own assessment of himself lightly. Remember, he could not care less if the Corinthians demolished him or lionized him. Refused, he refused to put much store by his own estimation of himself. Well, here is how he managed to do that. He's looking for the commendation of Almighty God. Almighty God, 
His opinion is the only one that ultimately matters. Then each one, Paul says, will receive his commendation from God. Paul is labouring for the well done, good and faithful servant of his master. He's seeking to live so as to please his God. No one else's opinion, not even his own, carries final weight with him. His question is not what will others think of me? Neither is it what do I think of me? His question is will my conduct today receive the well done of my Redeemer? What is the path to self-forgetfulness so that you're enslaved neither by the opinions of others or by the boasts of ego? It is knowing that only one opinion matters in the end. What does God say? What does God say about the work of your heart and your head and your hands? What will Jesus say at his appearing over the work of his stewards who ought to have been faithful in the house of God? What will he say about the labours of his under rowers who ought to have been pulling their oars to the beat of his drum? Now, when the commendation of God matters supremely, it really does not matter if men demonise or lionise you and your own verdict could not matter less. If you are a Christian, you'll never hear a word of condemnation, but you will hear a word of commendation. Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You cannot be condemned believer in Jesus when that final courtroom is called into session. That is good news. Because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven and cannot be condemned. But you can be and ought to live for the commendation of King Jesus on that day. There is a word of commendation to be spoken over you. No word of condemnation, but a word of commendation. And I rather suspect when we all gather at the throne and hear his commendations, we'll be surprised how rarely his commendations agree with the praises of men or the congratulations of our own consciences, because both often miss the mark entirely. And so having secured the assurance of no condemnation through faith in the Lord Jesus, we're being called to pursue the word of commendation by faithful obedience to Jesus Christ, to live for the smile of Abba Father and to pursue hard after the well done, good and faithful servant of our Redeemer. May God bless the word.